Here we are then, friends, another episode of Call of the Wild, which is the podcast from WWF with yours truly, Kel Spellman. This is the place where I find out about the environmental threats to our planet and most importantly, find out what can we do to help. This month, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Now, if you did listen last month, you'll know that we celebrated that all-important phrase, people power, and looked at all the different ways we can stand up for our planet. So we had an idea. To wrap up season two, we wanted to talk about identity and how our sense of identity influences our relationship with nature, including how empowered we feel to bring about positive change for the environment. We all have a unique relationship with nature and how we engage with it. And the changes happening as a direct result of the climate and nature crisis, they are impacting people in many different ways here in the UK and around the world. While we can all play our part in protecting and restoring the natural world, we need to make sure that no one is left behind in this movement. It goes without saying, there are so many different and important perspectives on this topic, and there was no way we could include absolutely everyone in this episode. But let me tell you, we have some very exciting, inspiring guests who really are shaking up the environmental space. We've got Dr. Karen Bell from the University of Glasgow who studies how societal systems prevent equal access to nature for communities. Environmental justice is about everybody having a healthy environment. I also spoke with the incredible climate activist Noga Levy Rappaport about what identity and standing up for the planet means to them. For me, identity is really, it's a story we tell about ourselves. Plus, we'll be hearing from Anjali Rama Middleton from Choked Up about the importance of creating a community pushing for a new clean air act and photographer Alfie Bowen on raising awareness for autism and nature. Identity is so personal. Identity is relative to us and how we feel. All our stories are different and all our experiences as we move through life shape our identity. Identity can change how we feel and who we think that we are. Even for myself, when I think about when I began my journey of speaking up for the planet, which was around 15 and 16, would I have necessarily said that speaking up for nature and really fighting to turn the tide on the climate crisis was a part of me? No. But now, oh gosh, 11 years further down the line, it really is an intrinsic part of me. I can't not do, say, or think about anything without that coming into the equation. And with all that being said, as our world changes and we stand up for nature's future and indeed our own, we need to ensure that a system is in place that works for everyone and anyone, not just a select few. Because we all rely on a healthy, fair, safe, sustainable environment. And that is what we call environmental justice. That those who are more likely to have experienced environmental burdens are included in the conversations when it comes to making decisions for our planet at every level. And that is something that Dr. Karen Bell studies and teaches at the University of Glasgow. I wanted to dig into this and know, given that we all have a role in protecting our planet, why aren't certain voices being heard? Yeah, good question. The reason people's voices aren't heard with regard to the environment is really the same reason why they're not heard in relation to anything. We have within our societies classism, racism, sexism, disableism, ageism, homophobia, all these different aspects of people not being seen, 
not being listened to, not being valued as equal. And I think the reason that can happen is because we have these hierarchies of power, economic hierarchies, and the people from those groups, not all of them, but some of them, and in different ways, are less likely to be seen and represented in the powerful institutions of our society. So like education, media, policy making, government, directors of companies, that kind of thing. So just not having the um, social and economic power means that people are less likely to be visible, less likely to be heard on the environment as well as these other issues. But we also have the more everyday difficulties of people being heard around the environment to do with some of those groups having less time because there's something called time poverty, which tends to affect actually poorer people more, disabled people, women, black groups for different reasons affects them more. And then not having the the money to engage sometimes in some kind of green practices like green consumption, for example, so their voice yeah. won't be heard. And I guess as well, then there are pressures that there are other groups or other individuals face that even I as a working class person won't be aware of because it's just not my lived experience. And I guess that goes on across the whole spectrum of people when it comes to trying to include everyone in this conversation. Yeah, definitely. So environmental injustice can apply across all the different equalities groups. And and it's the same issues. It's, you know, not being recognised as having a valuable contribution to make. So, for example, disabled people have constantly been saying, look, listen to us. We're always thinking about how to adapt. We're always thinking about different ways of doing things because we, we simply have to. And we've got a lot to contribute to the conversation. But quite often the finger is pointed at us as being environmental Mm. problems because, for example, we might need to use the private car because public transport isn't accessible for us or we might need to use bigger cars because we need to get our equipment in. But first of all, you have to acknowledge that we have different needs and stop pointing the finger at us as being an environmental problem when we're actually part of the environmental solution. The same with people from LGBTQI plus backgrounds are saying, you know, sometimes we're feeling alienated from the discourse here. We need to be listening to those groups, have them included in the conversation. So the environmental solutions that we come up with are going to work for everybody. There's a lot of things to think about, but people can articulate this. All you really have to do is ask them, does this work for you? You know, it's basic respect a lot of the time. If if we're going to bring this back to nature, I wanted to ask what your thoughts are on how our lived experience influences our relationship with nature, Karen. There's been a lot of research showing that if you're working class or low income or a black Asian minority ethnic background and some other backgrounds as well, you're much less likely to live near a green space, for example. Mm -hmm. And also given that you're much more likely to have more than one job and to have long hours or unpredictable hours, it's, it's actually harder for you to make that journey to go to a green space. So unless it's right near your house which it tends not to be, you might not have the money to go and visit those places. There are ways of helping people to connect 
with nature, different groups that are doing walks out into nature, different BAME groups so that they're kind of going together in groups and they can enjoy it in groups without thinking somebody's going to say something to them. And if they do, and then they're in a group, it's a bit easier to tolerate. I think it does matter having access to green space, but if you haven't got it, let's fight for it. In the meantime, let's try and build the connection with the ways that we can connect. On the other side of it, this is it's a slightly more tricky one, Karen, but when we look at our identity as well, you know, who, who we are as, a, as an individual or as a group maybe, how does that kind of then relate to how we feel about the environment? Do you think that then plays a part in it or not? I do, yes. Again, there's some evidence and it's certainly come from my research as well. People like to join things that they feel people like them are involved in. So if they think environmentalists are a certain category of people, then they think, well, people like me are not there. Then I don't want to go around saying that I'm one of those, you know. So it's harder for some groups to get involved in environmentalism. So that could affect how they identify as supporting nature, for example, because they may not see themselves as environmentalists. For example, like some of these protests, there's a possibility of getting arrested and all of that would stop people going. If you're from a BAME background or a working class background, you can't just accept that you could get a criminal record because that's going to stick to you much more than it would for a middle class person. People could get excluded from identifying in that way. Or is there anything yeah, we can do as the people listening to you now, Karen, to try and amplify those voices or make sure they have a seat at the table? I always keep going back to this cop, but, you know, we know that the global south were nowhere near at any of the tables at the last climate change conference up in uh, Glasgow. How do we start making this an all-inclusive, a fair representation of the conversation that involves everyone? There's different levels of change that needs to happen so we need the personal level you know we need to read listen to podcasts like this just try and get as much information as we can from people who've tried to take all this apart what does classism look like on an everyday level in Mm. terms of the the microaggressions what does racism look like how have we incorporated that ourselves into our own thinking and therefore what can we change in what we do who are we thinking about who are we whose voice are we actually properly giving respect to but simultaneously to doing that we also need to think on an organizational level who's getting the jobs have we got all our diversity groups as volunteers or are we actually paying them, you know? And then there's the policy questions, you know, how is our environmental policy actually going to impact on these different groups? Because there's a whole policy justice element to this as well. So we want to make sure that the people that can afford to pay for the environmental changes necessary will pay for it. We've got a system that relies upon constant economic growth. When we've actually got a limited planet, people at the top are overusing resources. People at the bottom haven't got the resources they need. Millions of people going to food banks now, not got enough environmental resources in that way. So there's different levels of change. There's a lot to do. It doesn't have to be a stressful or negative thing, it could actually make us happier to try and create environmental justice. So we need anger, and there's plenty of that about, but we also need hope. We need to see that there are things we can do, and 
it doesn't have to be a difficult thing. It just can yes. sometimes replacing some habits, replacing some of our connections for more positive choices. As Karen said, there's a lot to do to achieve environmental justice. This change absolutely needs to be backed by governments and world leaders. And that's one way we as individuals can help support others and the planet by reminding our leaders of that very fact. And if you need reminding of that even more, check out our People Power episode that was out last month. So for the rest of this episode, I wanted you to meet some young activists who are taking a stand for our planet and finding out how that has influenced their sense of identity. Because identity is not just about how we describe ourselves, it's also shaped by our lived experiences with the people we care about. So first up, let me introduce Anjali Rama Middleton. She's one of the four co-founders of Choked Up, one of the most important campaigns that I think is around at the moment. It is a campaign group of black and brown teens living in areas that are impacted by air pollution. And air pollution is a huge problem. In 2019, 99% of the world's population was living in places where the World Health Organization air quality guideline levels were not met. When we spoke to Anjali, she kicked things off by explaining how campaigning for the right to clean air for her community has influenced who she is as a person. I think I think it probably is a part of me and I think it's something that people definitely associate with me. Like I think other people's perceptions of me are kind of affected by my campaigning. And I think my perception of myself is probably as well. I can't really imagine who I'd be without it. It's black and brown people who are most affected by environmental issues globally. Like every single environmental issue disproportionately affects those communities. If we aren't listening to them, if we aren't putting them at the front of the solution and putting their voices first, we're not solving the issue. We're just solving it for a few people, coming up with solutions that make some people's lives better, but ignore the people who were worst affected and the majority of people's. We really do need to listen to them and put them first. I couldn't agree more. So let's find out exactly who are choked up and what do they want for their community? So Choked Up is a group of black and brown teenagers who live in highly polluted areas of London and are angry about air pollution effectively and want to make sure that their communities are breathing clean air and that this is all protected by legislation and massive changes to the Clean Air Act and a new Clean Air Act, ideally, that puts the lives of those who are at the forefront of this crisis at the forefront of the solution. And I really can't stress enough how much these voices need to be heard. Air pollution kills. In February 2013, nine-year-old Ella Kissy Deborah, who lived near a busy road called the South Circular, died of an asthma attack. Her mother, Rosamond, spent years fighting to have her daughter's death further examined and in a landmark ruling in only December 2020, the coroner cited air pollution as a cause of death, the first time in UK legal history. It was detected that levels of nitrogen oxide near Ella's home had exceeded the guidelines of the World Health Organization. So I live near the same road that Ella lived by, so we both live along the South Circular. When I was going to secondary school, I would get a bus like 
down this road for basically an hour and a half every day. So it meant that I was really exposed to air pollution. And luckily I don't have any like pre-existing lung conditions like asthma or anything. And people who have that air pollution is significantly worse for them because it worsens these issues. But I still wonder what kind of effect the air pollution is having on my lungs and on my body because it can shorten life expectancy, it can cause dementia, it can make me more vulnerable to cardiovascular issues when I'm older. And so I wonder if any health issues I have in the future will be because of the area that I grew up in. I think a lot of people are vaguely aware of air pollution as a concept, but they don't understand the kind of impacts they can have. And they think that it doesn't have these long-term lasting impacts. They kind of think, oh, it's only bad for people who have existing conditions. It's only bad for children. It's only bad for like the elderly which just isn't true, it's bad for everyone, it just affects people in different ways. And I think we need to really change the narrative on that so that we make people understand that these schemes are actually for them and improving their lives. Because, I mean, the majority of cars are owned by like more middle-class communities, right? And they're the ones who are driving through these areas along the red routes and worsening the air that people that like Ella were breathing. We need to just stress that it's actually for them. And whilst it seems like it's again working against them, it's actually improving their lives and it will have a significant impact on their lives in the future. Well, all of this is no easy task. We talk about using your voice so much here on Call of the Wild all the time, but how do you make sure you're heard? That is something that Anjali and Choked Up are constantly striving for. Last year, we ran a campaign where we put up road signs that we had changed to be about air pollution. So they had like pollution zone, breathing kills on them. And we put these up in areas that have really severe air pollution and in communities that are disproportionately affected. And um, we got a lot of coverage in like The Guardian, BBC, The Times, Galdem as well, which is was particularly good as it's targeted towards the kind of communities that we want to reach out to. We've been in conversations with Sadiq Khan and Kirstammer and the Labour Party to try and get better clean air policies and reach out more to cities in the UK. I mean, Choked Up's ultimate goal is a new clean air act. So there is currently one that has been proposed by Jenny Jones and is in the House of Lords at the moment. I really hope it does become proper legislation, but I'm not going to get my hopes up because I do not think this government will pass that bill. And I'm not even sure if it will get through the Lords, but I think the very fact that it's being proposed is really promising. I think there also needs to be a lot of investment into local communities and like local government. It's not a one size fits all. It very much has to be tailored to the community because there are some communities that have like far worse air pollution than others and you've got to be aware of that. Schemes that work in one place may not work in another and you have to actually give councils the funding to properly investigate and research these ideas and work out how they would fit in their community and do it in a way that benefits everyone living there and doesn't just help certain areas. It's less about preaching doom and gloom and is more of a celebration of the communities that we live in and making sure that they're safe.
I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, a massive thank you to the brilliant Anjali Raman Middleton, who is, of course, from Choked Up. If you do want to learn and know more, you can go support them on their socials. It's at Choked Up underscore UK on Instagram and Twitter. So up next, I would like to introduce Noga Levy Rappaport, another person I've been incredibly inspired by and have admired from afar for a long time. Noga is a climate justice activist, and let me tell you, they have done so much. From organising climate strikes across the UK as part of the Global Youth Strike for Climate campaign, to being named a Forbes Top 100 UK environmentalists for their work on youth empowerment, educational reform and systemic change. Noga is an absolute force for nature when it comes to speaking up for the planet, as well as queer rights, feminist equality and social justice. But what I wanted to dig into was more about their journey. How has that shaped their identity and what changes they want to see to achieve environmental justice? I'm Noga Leverapport. I'm 20 years old. I use all pronouns and I'm a climate activist, I'm a student. I've been organising demonstrations and working in environmental spaces for over three years now. And I've just been doing a bit of everything, lots of fingers in lots of pots. Yeah, kind of like identity, I guess. So very fitting. I mean, you say lots of fingers in lots of pots, that might be an understatement. (laughs) I've been so excited to think about this episode as a whole and I attribute one of the biggest shifts in mindset and consciousness around the environment and, you know, climate change mm. was particularly those strikes. I think it's it was a real game changer, really. I wondered, though, what was it that made you want to get into this space from organising strikes, from actually thinking, right, I'm not only just going to, like, say I care about this, you went yeah. straight into the belly <laughs> of the beast. I mean, you are yeah. the belly of the beast in a way. <laughs> I'm right in there. Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't have that jump from, like, oh, I care about this to being in the middle of it because if you'd spoken to me, up until the age of 16, I would not have told you I cared one bit about climate change. Not because I didn't. Like, I really specifically remember being six years old and being shown a photo of some clouds, essentially, being told, right, this is the ozone layer, there's a huge hole in it. If your dads don't stop using aerosol cans to shave, it's going to get bigger and bigger. And that was literally all we were told. Yeah. So like, the first thing I was ever told about it was, A, that it was essentially inevitable, and B, that the actions that we could take were so small, so individual, that they were like totally negligible. Yes. And that was, for me, like, I totally internalised for the following 10 years that this was something totally inevitable. Yes. And then I suddenly saw you know, what was happening around the world. I saw what Greta Thunberg was doing, and I saw that in Australia the climate strikes had picked up, and I just thought, like, God, like, if only we had something like that here. Like, I grew up very political, but... I hadn't seen something that was actually specifically around young people Mm -hmm. and specifically around climate change. So kind of hearing, okay, wait, there are kind of rumblings in the distance. This could happen here. This could happen in the UK. That was for me that moment of like, right, I'm going to go. I'm going to join. I'm going to borrow a megaphone off another protester. I'm going to start screaming that people need to follow me down the street. And like, I'm just going to lead these 5,000 protesters with me or I'm going to walk out into the road alone and hope, you know, I don't get run over. <laughs> Since having that real moment of like, oh my God, there are so many young people around me and they're all feeling the exact way that I am. They're all sharing this. They're all suddenly realising that actually as a collective, we're capable of doing absolutely incredible and powerful things. Yeah. It was go hard or go home. It's amazing because, you know, I think it's a beautiful thing to say and even for people listening maybe going like, there's no set time or a point mm. you if you want to get involved in this conversation or get involved with trying to make a difference start any time you want yeah. and then you can then choose how much you want to get involved but as you know we're, this episode is centered around identity so I wanted to begin 
well, say it again, we're already right into it. <laughs> but, um, you know, what does identity mean to you? I mean, it's, it is a big word. Like, it's a, big it's a huge, well. it's a huge thing. But I, for me, identity is really, I remember saying this to my dad a while ago when he was trying to figure something out. And I just, like, I just looked at him and I was like, look, identity is just, it's a story we tell about ourselves. It's something we say because we need to belong. We need to express a part of ourselves because we're fundamentally, you know, social creatures. We're a part of a community. We want to collaborate. We want to help each other. But we want to be a part of each other's stories. It's about, you know, saying, okay, this is who I am in all these different ways because I am complex and I am multifaceted and I come from all these different places and I do all these different things. And that makes me who I am. Mm -hmm. And it's like quite fundamentally a way in which we connect to one another. And it's really, it's I think it's the most crucial kind of baseline part of who we are is yes. our identity. Yeah, absolutely. But so tell us then a bit about your journey in a way, I guess. I mean, uh, yeah, for me, identity has always been such a huge part of my life. Like I came to the UK when I was very young. I was a toddler. I didn't speak English at the time. My, for my parents, English is their second language as well. And we've lived here ever since I was born in Tel Aviv and kind of having all my family over there. For every immigrant who comes, you have that very distinct feeling that you don't immediately necessarily belong. All the kids in my primary school were all born in the same hospital and I was born outside the world. <laughs> um, and, you know, there are moments where you kind of feel quite alone. And for me, an important part of my identity is that I'm Jewish and I'm from this religious minority that actually has a very complex history as anyone does. I had a very big talk with my mum when I was like five or six years old. She was basically like, here are all the isms of the world. and I became this like known like class feminist this nerd this kid that came out very young I said that I was bisexual when I was 12 13 which is really really young for a lot of people and I went to a very big school where that was very rare to do it's also amazing though it was scary yeah I was going to say there's a lot of bravery and courage there it was terrifying I mean I started experimenting with pronouns at the time as well and that this was a time when I mean this was what like eight nine years ago but like that was (laughs) nowhere near where we're at now yeah things were changing you know I used it's slightly different labels now and there were the reaction that I got was actually so difficult at times that there were times when I just went back into the closet I was like forget this pronoun stuff you know I'll just I'll go by this for now because I've got my own stuff to deal with we often talk about identity like it's a thing that you do but it's something that is a part of you as you grow up and experience life it's not just like an add-on that I could take a break from the rest of it from being a teenager and having to go to school and deal with everything that you're dealing with at that time it's something that is just a part of all of those things to find that articulation is difficult and the way in which I express myself is changing the labels that I use are changing but at the end of the day is I'm always that kid who sat in the class and went this is what I believe and that really shaped me a huge huge amount yeah and I think though you can now feel it now in, mm. in your work and now who you are as a person. It's the, 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 the lessons, some that were great and some that are so hard and such can be said for life. Yeah. If you can come out the other side of them and you have that growth, it can only ever stand you in good stead yeah. moving Absolutely. forward. And I think it's such a beautiful point you made that identity isn't linear. It's just this one thing. And once you've got it set, that's it. It's not, never, of course not. Life is, life is a wave. Anything that we can do is if you can accept that things might change, are you going to feel things a little differently? Yeah. Or then I think the world would be a bit more of an open, mm. accepting place. Do I you mean, know I think I mean? So, there's so much pressure, you know, within the environmental movement, within kind of every social justice collective you're a part of, there's this pressure to be a certain way, to state who you are mm. directly and to just be that and to kind of be very one-sided. Like yes. I said, very linear. But actually, like, we have to push that off. I'll pick you up on that point then because I did want to ask you, you know, has your sense of identity changed the more that you've advocated for the planet? When, you know, if you start from where you're at 16 to even now, has has that changed? I think for me there were two 
parts of it. One was kind of quite major. When I joined the environmental movement, like I'd just come out a very difficult period of like teenage mental health. It was very tough. And I was kind of, it kind of bridged that gap for me where it was like, okay, this is actually something much bigger than me that I'm really passionate about and I can actually do an awful lot in it. And that really just gave me so much self-confidence because kind of being a part of that really broad collective, like it was just like, well, none of, none of that matters. I'm already making these connections between who benefits from fossil fuels and from greenwashing and PR. So can I make those same connections in like the cosmetics industry? Can I make those same connections to kind of the young people around me, the insecurities they're feeling? Who is benefiting from those insecurities? Yes. Who does that actually serve? But then on the other hand, you know, I was also in a very unique position where I was doing a lot of media work I really avoided mentioning anything personal because then it really felt like, okay, if I say anything that anyone could attack me for, could demonise me for, is that going to bring down the rest of the movement? Like how much of an effect is that going to have? Actually, really the contribution that I can make is so much more impactful when I just speak as who I am. Yeah, when you can feel that, you know, when there is complete honesty there. Off that then further... And this is a very obvious question, but I think sometimes the obvious questions... You've got to ask You've it. got because yeah. it gives the best answers. Why is it important for the LGBTQ plus community to be involved mm. in the environmental space? Yeah, I mean, it's massive for, again, for kind of that basic reason where every group is a part of this crisis. The more marginalised you are, the less access you have to healthcare, to housing, to education, to a strong community, to financial support. Statistically, LGBT plus community has been missing from the environmental movement. This Definitely. is something where levels of access to nature and experiences and comfort are really, really missing. Partially, again, when it's a movement that has been traditionally worn down by perfectionism and by pressures from essentially our antagonists to, you know, be pure or be nothing, you know, has meant that actually there has been a huge amount of emphasis on, on how you look and who you are and how you present and express yourself. And so I think a lot of these things have really pushed out the queer community in particular. But then when it comes to kind of, yeah, that nature and that feeling, that's these are often very communal things. These are family-based things. And that's obviously something where LGBT plus people in particular tend to miss out on when we're estranged from our families or when we don't have those support networks you're really unlikely to take like a solo camping trip if you are already struggling accessing financial aid if you know that your access to healthcare isn't that great if you know that you don't have a stable home Mm. as it is that access to nature that a lot of people might take for granted is just not there and so the pull to support and protect the environment hasn't been as personal hasn't been as evocative then we've had this huge gap and we've been like, right, well, where is everyone? <laughs> um, which has been very difficult. And, and yeah, how do we combat that when these problems are so structural? If we could fix those problems, we would have solved also the climate crisis. They're all part of the same thing anyway. It's Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. Mm. And for those listening, what would be some of them changes or what you know what do we need to achieve then in this environmental mm. journey if you had some like key points you know or what what would they be do you think i mean for me it's two main things one is the most important find a community find those like-minded people the strategy to get organized is simple and is so grounded in history because it's been done so many times before and um, that very basic social theory of who's the authority what do we need to do what is their motivation let's push back find your people like you've got to you absolutely cannot do this alone and it would be it would be silly to try to do this alone because you'll get burnt out and the second part is it's tough to go into any movement but something that you know has kind of traditionally been missing 
when kind of movements have this huge influx of people, which is great, is political education. Really getting into the reading and understanding of the climate crisis, looking for those connections everywhere you go in real life terms. You know, how does the climate crisis affect me at every single step? As scary as it is, is crucial. And every single bit of information that you learn that is terrifying and horrible, let that fuel you absolutely. And that love that you have for those people around you, that community that you build, that'll get you through all of it. We can all be a part of this. Like we can all be involved in it. We just have to really, really put ourselves out there. Woof. Noga, thank you so much. As I said, we could have stayed chatting all day. It was so brilliant to learn more about Noga's story. And if you're interested to learn more and continue to follow Noga in her incredible work and maybe even get involved in some stuff, you can do. Just follow them on Instagram at Noga Levy Rappaport. And in case you were interested, the next global climate strike is on Friday, the 23rd of September. And I might just see you there. Now, our final guest hasn't been using a megaphone to shout about conservation, but a camera lens. Alfie Bowen is a 24-year-old wildlife photographer. He's an author. He's also an activist with autism who uses his art to raise awareness of wildlife and autism. And you really do need to check out his work. It's incredible. And I have been very fortunate enough to have a little picture of Alfie's up right here in my flat when recording this episode. He can sometimes have to wait for hours, sometimes days, to capture the perfect shot, creating stunning images with his unique view of the world. And I've been so delighted to get him on Call of the Wild. Interestingly though, Alfie only took up photography in 2014 and it quickly became an escape for him and helped him through difficult times. So here is Alfie telling us about his story and journey so far. Autism manifests itself in a variety of ways and everyone with autism is different. But for me, life with autism is filled with positives and the odd negative. I am proud to be autistic and proud of the many positives that having autism gives me. The forensic attention to detail, the incredibly strong emotions I feel and the obsession with animals I am gifted with. At this stage of my journey, the negatives of living with autism are much less dominant than they were during my early years but I still battle intense anxiety and difficulties with social situations. For those that don't know, autism spectrum disorder is a developmental disorder, although I don't particularly like the term disorder, because autistic people do not have an illness, we just process things differently. We can achieve great things and live a full life, and I think that's important to point out. I'm very grateful for my diagnosis, because it is undoubtedly the reason I have such a deep and close relationship with the natural world. Autism brings with it obsessions, and I'm very lucky that my obsession has always been nature and animals. Because of increased sensitivity, I pick up on every small detail. That makes much of the world difficult to navigate. Colours are brighter, voices are louder, and I am always on high alert. But that increased sensitivity makes for beautiful experiences when I'm in nature. A walk along the beach includes noticing a thousand different colours amongst the stones, a sea filled with varying shades of blue, and a walk in the woods includes picking up on every single sound, every single shade of green, and every single ray of light. My autism also draws me towards order and pattern, for example the beautiful markings of the giraffe or the stripes of the zebra. My connection with nature really began during the first years of my life. I remember being told that if I wasn't around animals or in nature then I would throw a tantrum. 
My photographic journey really began as an extension of my love of animals. I'd spent several months reading about animals and watching Sir David Attenborough on the television, and so I picked up my mother's little Lumix compact camera. It gave me another way of connecting with the natural world. That was in 2015, and I haven't been without a camera ever since. I personally believe that autism plays a big part in my photographic style. My work is very detail-focused, and I guess I don't want people to overlook nature in the same way I was overlooked. They would miss out on so much, and so I hope that my work really helps them to connect with our natural world. Photography has helped me overcome many challenges throughout my life. It became an escape from the bullying I face daily, and a therapy that helped me to deal with that bullying and life with autism. It also became my method of communication. It was how I shared my love of the natural world with those around me. Quite frankly, I'm not sure I would be alive were it not for photography, wildlife, and the natural world. Raising awareness of autism and conservation is a very important part of what I do. I speak openly about my journey with autism in the hope that it inspires other young autistic people to continue fighting on, and also in the hope that it educates others to be kind. Raising awareness of conservation is important because the natural world has given me so much throughout my life. It's been such an escape during the difficult times. I also obviously want to conserve the species that I'm so lucky to photograph. Throughout my life and career, I've often been told that I'm crazy for sharing my difficulties and talking about my dark days. But I'm clear that I'm on a mission to change the world for people with autism. And change only comes when we stand up and speak out. My message is clear. Follow your dreams and be kind. Some beautiful words to finish by and ones I absolutely subscribe to as well. If you want to see and learn more about Alfie's work and follow him on his journey, you can do just that. It's at Alfie Bowen on Instagram. And I'll say it again. This really is an incredible and important part of the climate conversation. And I would not have been able to navigate it without the help of all my esteemed guests, Dr. Karen Bell, Anjali Rahman Middleton and Noga Levy Rappaport and of course everyone else involved in making this episode. From the power that comes from uniting with others down to our unique experiences and strengths, we all have a voice and we can all use that to stand up for the people, communities, species and environments that we all care about, that we are very much a part of it as it is a part of us because the health of the natural world affects us all. And I promise you when I say, we can all play our part in bringing it back to life, especially when we listen to absolutely everyone in this climate conversation. And if you just take and heed some of the words from all our guests today, there is so much hope and inspiration and motivation we can take from them. I know I do, and I really hope you do too. But I guess ultimately, systemic change needs to come from our government's world leaders, decision makers and policy. When we use our voice, we make sure they know what matters to us and we can make sure that they bring about this change by installing these systems and policies that we so desperately, desperately need to see. And fingers crossed, and I believe they absolutely can and will, we just have to keep applying that pressure, my friends. And there we have it. It has been a journey. That is it for this week. And... It just pay me to say for season two of Call of the Wild. 
Of course, I couldn't leave you without one more treat, and that is that we have one more bonus episode coming your way in a few weeks' time, and I will be keeping everything crossed that will be back for a season three. In the meantime, as I say, if you've not had a chance to listen to some of our other episodes, why don't you go back and have a listen to season one? If you want to tell a friend or a family member about this series to listen, that too would be a massive help. Call of the Wild is a Fresh Air production for WWF. Please do subscribe or follow now for free so that you don't miss an episode. The Wild is calling. It's time to act.